We live in difficult times. In this, the era of the cinematic universe, the TV of our childhood has begun to seem disjointed and nonsensical. That's why we, the Space Jam Continuum podcast team, have taken it upon ourselves to fashion a coherent cinematic universe from something that was simply never meant to be one. The Looney Tunes and Merry Melody's franchise. So join us for an epic tale of interdimensional travel, secret government agencies, monkey mayors, unsustainable welfare states, submissive dogs, escape tunes, regenerating pigs, questionable employment law, trouser hams, sentient eggs, malformed puffy doe trotters, demarcation and poor kind family drama. There's a long road ahead, so why not join us for the ride every Wednesday on Kaiju FM, wherever you like to listen to podcasts, as we try to create one exhaustive, cohesive Space Jam continuum. this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast all about films, filmmaking, film theory and the movies that we love. Each week we pick a movie. This season we are doing Directors by Month, so we are still in the Akira Kurosawa month. So picking a movie, we talk about our feelings, our reactions to it and some of the ideas and themes we think it throws up uh, in terms of a sort of a filmic text. Each week we end the show with our recommendations for, as we call it, further reading, the uh, films that we are inspired to think about as part of this movie but always we start with what else we've been watching in the interim weeks so sam since our last record what have you watched right yesterday i went and using the time before birth of child to go and see as much as possible at the cinema um we went to see the second kinsman film um oh yeah have you did you see the first one i did i did i didn't enjoy it honestly but uh, I, that's I have I know nothing second one. Yeah, well, the thing thing is, I I quite enjoyed the first one as well. Um, there was a sort of off color moment right at the end, and I thought, well, we can let's let's just explain that away and put that down to you know some something misjudged in the direction. And um, I was quite looking forward to this new one because I thought, well. If they'd taken the good bits and done more of that and toned down some of the more laddish bits and misogyny, then then great. Um, unfortunately, as so often happens with sequels and sequels that we've talked about on the podcast, they've taken the bits that people didn't really like um, and thought, well, that's what people want. Let's dial them up. Mm. Um, so I was hugely disappointed by it. Um, there were some very good bits. Um, there is it's a phenomenal cast. There is um, useful, useful acting, sort of almost cameos from people like Jeff Bridges and Shannon Tatum's in it for a bit, and Colin Firth is great. Um, but it's just generally feels a bit ill-judged. Julianne uh, Moore is the villain and she's completely unconvincing as a villain, doesn't seem to care about acting. And there are... The the sexual moments felt too much in kind of a 14-year-old boy fantasy kind of way. And the mm. violence felt a bit out of place. So now I'm not averse to violent films at all, but 
this film, I mean, my wife said it afterwards, she put it well, but it didn't seem to know what it was. And it's not a violent, a horrifically violent film, except there, there were some really, really violent moments. And I thought, well, that's a bit much. Even the language, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't care about swearing on screen normally. It just, it, it just felt a bit like an adolescent boy trying too hard. And the use of gratuitous swearing just felt a bit like that. And I thought, well, why was that necessary? So, a huge, huge disappointment. And they, as 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 with you, I, I really quite enjoyed the first one and was, was looking forward to it. But unfortunately, this wasn't for me. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I, I, I've heard mixed reviews on it. And I have seen an interview with Direct to kind of so we say gleefully decides to wind people up. Yes. Uh, some of the reactions to the first one, I think he saw that and saw it a bit like a red, 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 red to a bull. Mm. So I'm unsurprised to hear that they've taken some of the more dissavory mm. um, elements of the first one and kind of turned that up a little bit. I very much I mean, at the other end of the, the filmic scale, and this week my wife and I watched a 2009 film, which in the UK is called An Unlikely Hero, but to the rest of the world is called Paperman. And if you look look at the uh, sort of the posters and and the PR around it, you think it was a Ryan Reynolds superhero movie, early superhero movie. Um, it is nothing like that whatsoever. It is the tale of Jeff Daniels playing a failed writer, who, in as part of an estrangement with his wife, moves out to a sort of a Long Island beach community and befriends a local teenage girl, and together they both kind of find themselves and find some sort of maturity and sort of coming of age in many ways. Ryan Reynolds does play a superhero, but that superhero is Jeff Daniels' imaginary childhood friend who turns up in Ryan Reynolds' original sarcastic um, and uh, snarky way. It is nothing like the poster thing you think it is, um, but it was very good in its a very sort of different sort of thing. I think it has a tendency to stray towards awkward comedy, towards cringy comedy. Um, which is not a kind of comedy that I particularly enjoy. So there were sections of it I was like, nah, I think this isn't going nowhere. I think this is this is at odds with the rest of the film, which was heartfelt and calming and, and quite uh, in-depth and personal to the, the main characters. I don't think it got a lot of love when it came out, um, but it's certainly one checking out. I believe we saw it on Amazon Prime, so it's there to be picked up. If you're in the UK, I'm sure if you're outside the UK, it'll be out there somewhere to be watched. Uh, but Paperman to the rest of the world, or an unlikely hero to the UK. So, this week, we are bringing to a close our Akira Kurosawa month with something of a departure from these sorts of films we've looked at in previous weeks. I suppose that's the best way to put it. We are looking at his first colour film, 1970s Dodis Kaden. Dodis Kaden 
is his first film in colour, and it tells several different stories of life in a Japanese slum, um, including that of Rokuchan, who's a mentally deficient young man who drives an imaginary streetcar. And the sound of that streetcar is is the nonsense word of the title. Um, and there are various storylines involving the women and their husbands in the community and a father and child who dream of better things. And it's 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 an interesting patchwork that I think I should stop talking about because I have no doubt that Rob has lots to say about it. <laughs> well, I, I need to preface this uh this week's episode with the opposing information that some people might know but this has been in my top five films for the last probably 20 years and it remains in the top five films so any comments i make about this about this week's movie do take it in that kind of in that world that, that i do you know all cards on the table i love this film mm. i think it's brilliant that being said i'm well aware that it is not for everybody um, and the film was so much of a critical and commercial flop when it was released that it led to the disbanding of the group of directors who'd come together to make it, and it contributed to Akira Kurosawa's suicide attempt a year later. This is a film that did badly when it came out. Akira Kurosawa didn't make another film for four years after this film because of how badly it went. But I, I love it. I, love it. I, I, think, I think it is, you know, he's... Um, Akira Kurosawa's direct sort of background is as a painter, and I think his use of color that he's been restricted to in film kind of comes out in full force hit here. You know, he makes use of every bit of color, and that's something that's in a naturalistic say, something that's very non naturalistic. Um, and the Japanese sort of penchant for uh, giving colors meaning and having ongoing meanings color red means this, yellow means that, and all that kind of thing is played to full effect in this film. And I've always enjoyed sort of these films that kind of go nowhere, these films that are just a snapshot in time, that just kind of are dipping into someone's lives and dipping out again. But I'm intrigued to know what you think, Sam, because this is a film, and I'm, I'm hoping that I'm wrong, but this is a film that I can really see you not liking. Um, I think you are wrong, actually. Okay. Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> Um, only because I only say that because every time I've sat down with anyone over the last twenty years and shown them this film, no one has ever loved this film like I love this film. Right, I would um, I would say sorry. I don't love this film like you love this film, but I'm a very long way away from disliking this film. I thought there were lots and lots of things to recommend about this film. Um, his use of colour that you've already talked about is great. Um, I thought the use of music was brilliant in this film. There's a sort of a weird kind of jarring quality, this upbeat music alongside incredibly traumatic situations. Mm. And like when, when you have the fast cutting with the pictures right at the beginning and you understand what Rocket-chan's mother is going through, you have this bizarrely saccharine music that's going on at the same time um so i enjoyed that i thought the scene scenes particularly all the scenes with rocker jam are great um but particularly the scene with the tram right at the beginning and the idea of him sort of going around testing the tram and it 
it suddenly makes noises and you think, well, it just takes you out of this, takes you out of the moment and puts you in the, the mind of this um, mentally challenged young man. It was, yeah, th- there were there were things that I didn't like about this film, so I wouldn't say I was was absolutely blown out, blown away by it, but there was there was lots to recommend about it. Um, yeah. I'm glad. Um, I think some some things that I didn't much like about it, I thought, was sort of out of Kurosawa's control. Uh, one one of the well, I suppose not not really out of his control, but one of the sequences that I didn't much enjoy was when the father dreams the new house, and you notice mm-hmm. how limited the effects are. And it's it obviously the the special effects are limited. This was made in nineteen seventy, so to that extent, this is out of Kurosawa's control. What isn't is the decision to put those effects in, and mm-hmm. I wasn't quite on board with that i didn't much given given that he was so brilliantly subtle in the way that he presented rocket jam with the tram at the beginning and allowing the audience to imagine something to step inside the the creation the dreamlike creation of this young man it felt a bit forced to then say well actually i'm going to paint this picture for you i would have quite liked to just in imagine as I did with Rokishan what the the man and the boy were seeing see I, I felt that that scene was the idea of, of, of the dream sequence there was was the contrast the juxtaposition mm. of their lives and this world um, and that's what I felt he that's the reason why I agree it, it is out of that kind of the rest of the film which is quite naturalistic in its own little way mm. These dream sequences were unusual, but I think it comes from this place of trying to juxtaposition their increasingly ill state, their increasingly run-down state, and their general quality of life with this very sort of glowy and golden. But I would say, just to talk about that one moment again, this these colours, the, the film, how do you have it? It's film in colour, but I think there's important things we talk about in terms of the colour choices that are made. All the colours in this movie are quite sickly. Mm. So even even the scenes you see of this house, they are yellows and purples. And it's kind of, it feels quite sickly, I can say it. There's no sort of shots in this that feel like bright, clean um, sunshine. It's not green grass and blue skies. It's all very no. on edge. And I think that, 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 that there's, the Kirikos is trying to say something around even the dreams of of this beggar and his son are still tinged with this kind of life they lead. Even, it, it, because they're so dark and deep in their day-to-day life, even the imagining they've got is sick and twisted. Now, there is one different one, one shot that is different to that, which is the shot after, spoilers here, guys, after the son has died, um, and there's this, this jump cut into the pool, this giant blue pool, mm. Um, and that is the one, the one scene where it's green grass and it's blue water, and it's it's almost as as naturalistic and as traditional bright sunny as you can get. And that, personally, I read that as to being the innocence of the sun, because up until that, generally it's the dad describing things, and here he's entering his son's imagination, his son's thoughts, um, and the innocence of of the son over the less innocence of the father. 
um, is what I think they were trying to expand there. But that's it. That's just my personal reading of that scene. But then the tricky thing about that is the fact that the son's, as we just established, dead. And mm. so so what is Kurosawa trying to say? Is he trying to say that the father is only forced to think in this pure way when his sons are no longer there? I think it, that there's an element of the beggar learning in many ways. Um, it, there are earlier scenes in which the son goes and gets food and the son's like, we need to cook, we need to cook this, and, and the father's like, no, 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 we'll be fine, we'll be fine, we'll be fine, we'll be fine. And I, part of me thinks, is there... Is there an element to this where it's horrendous, obviously, and bad, but the, the, the death of his son forces that beggar into the realisation of who he is and what he is and the life he leads and where he is. And that moment, horrible as it is and life-changing as it is, forces him to realise and sort of the scales fall from his eyes in terms of everything. Mm. Um, but I, 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 I don't have a clear-cut answer for that, but I think it is interesting that... They do have these sickly colours, and all the all the sort of scenes of the um of everyone in this movie is that has sickly colours, but this one shot is a bit kind of brighter and lighter. Something I wanted to talk about as well is the these two uh, couples, the husband and wives, who may or may not sleep with each other, involves some form of wife swapping. You're never really sure, and. I thought, well, there was. It's very clear that one is is delineated with red and one is yellow, mm. um, but I still felt quite confused with all of that. And I thought that was a deliberate ploy on Kurosawa's part that whenever you see the characters in a room together, they're falling over each other, they're messing around. So, so physically, you can't see a separation between red and yellow, and it's all a bit mixed up. It's all a bit confused. I I agree. I think you. I mean, the thing, the thing I keep coming back to is Kurosawa's training as a painter. He knows what he's doing in terms of color. Mm. He, nothing here. He's thinking is. is is done by accident. And you're right, I think they've got these two colours, red and yellow, which mean different things in Japanese culture. Um, and I couldn't speak with any authority on what those things are, but they do mean... And you're right, because these two guys are always arm-in-arm, arm, falling over to us, slapping to other's back, swapping clothes, swapping wives, there is this feeling of the intermingled life. Mm. So these two, in what would in any other world be a separate, separate units, these two families with their yellow houses and red houses and their clothing, feel very unified merged yes you have that yellow house and red house it makes me think of the kind of books you get at primary schools with this this is johnny and he's living with his sister in a yellow house and on the other hand Mm. this is billy and he's living in a blue house and it's all there's that idea that in childhood things are quite separate and easily comprehensible in kind of a you understand why you do that Mm. for young children but what Kurosawa is saying is life isn't like that you can't have separation like that and clarity like that it's all mixed up all mixed up together yeah I think that's I mean the very nature of of the the tip on which they all live everyone's cheek to jow everyone's in everyone's businesses the stories the little stories they have overlap with each other throughout the entire movie Mm. Um, and you know you see there's a, a lovely shot of um, of a, a giant rainbow straight over almost a, a completely bland shot 
as as Roko-chan goes past on his tram. And all the shots where you do get this kind of the background to this um the the, the sunset's all kind of swirled oranges, purples, greens, all the colours intermingling. Um and I think the fil- the film is very much kind of portraying and playing with that we all merge together. And even the very last shot of the movie, the very beautiful shot in which the sun and trams and clearly coloured lights play against Roko-chan's drawings of the trams all around his his, his mother's room. Mm. You end up with this, this, this rainbow effect, almost. Um, I'm going to sort of reference a a, a, um, a film that was going to be possibly one of my recommendations, but isn't. Uh, what Dreams May Come, which is quite a saccharine 90s film, but the visuals have the same kind of painterly aspect to it. This idea that you these swirling colours that intermingle and merge with each other. And I think there's a con- direct line between the visuals of the colour there and the stories that we that we uh, we're told. Now, these aren't this is this isn't something where you're going three separate stories like Russian where they overlap. They they are distinct entities. Here, it's 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 this melting pot of story where everything touches everything else. As you mentioned, Russian, then how do you feel sort of looking back on a month of Kurosawa films? Do you feel there's there's some some sort of through line here? How would you categorize the films that we've seen? I think, I mean, yes, I think there is a, a through line, but I think that through line changes as he goes through his career. He made a lot of films over many years. So I think that as as he's aged and got into this era, he was much more about individuality. Right. Um, whereas the earlier films were much, particularly things like Seven Samurai and Drunken Angel were about doing your duty and being a good Japanese citizen. Mm. Um, you feel by this point he's kind of seen more of, of what's happened in Japan and He's more sort of supporting the idea of individuals and individual stories and in amongst, well, you know, the idea that we're all in this together, but that can be built up in terms of individual sort of stories and people. And then there's a, um, the scene in which the businessman sort of attacks one of his colleagues over comments about his wife. Mm. You know, I, I feel, you know, in the early film, that would been a case of everyone's agreeing, you know, this this isn't a, a good woman, this sh- shouldn't be your wife, you know, she's a bad woman. Uh, whereas here, you know, he loves her, and they're together, and there's a feeling of, like, I don't care if you don't like her, I love her. Mm. Um, so I I, I see that, the, the, this changing attitude in Kurosawa to the idea of individuality. Um, and we talked about it a lot with Seven Samurai, the idea that you have to operate as a unit or everyone dies. Um, whereas here it's much more disparate and and discreet the uh, the stories. Oh, wait yourself. Well, I can see that. I can. I think there's. On the other hand, there is still something you can see. There's a note of compassion in Kurosawa's films, and there's, mm. there's there's he's always generous to his subjects. And I was just thinking that that moment when the young boy gets sent into get goes into a kitchen and the woman sends him away and is horrible and it messes up the leftovers so he can't take them and then the cook steps in and he says why are you being so mean i think mm. that is something that you get throughout kurosawa and that's whether whether we're looking at the individuality here or this sort of more community spirited feeling of um, Seven Samurai and Drunken Angel, you still have the idea of well, we're all human beings. Why, why do you feel the mm. need to be mean? Yes, there's certainly this film 
and even things like Drunken Angel um, are interested in humanising mm. people. Um, you, you, Angel, you've got the two main, the two main characters in there are a, are an alcoholic doctor and a a gangster with TB, and he's always been interested in the people behind these stories. Even Sam Samurai, which is as close to an action film as you get, he cares about the people, and you care about the human stories within that. And even, I mean, even look at Rushmore. The, the interest in that story is that you've got these people and, and their prejudices and their views impact the stories that they tell. Mm. So, Sam, do you have any recommendations for us? Uh, further reading, as it were. I do have a couple. Um, my first one is well, it quite, you know, quite nicely parallel moment. This is one of my top five films, and it's quite reminiscent of this. There is something about the not sure where the story is, and we're just going to present a patchwork of lives, and it also takes place in the slum, and it's also a foreign language film. Um, it is the um, rather more recent film, City of God. Um, again, so there are multiple storylines. There's a brilliant use of colour, brilliant use of sound and music as well. So I would put that down. And as I said, this is one of my top five films of all time. So I would I would put that one up there. Fair enough. My second connection, I struggle to find connections because, I mean, this film is just so of a kind. Um, nothing very much like it. But um, one connection is that the composer Toru Takamitsu is also the composer on a film that I've mentioned before and I will mention again because it's enjoyable and the source text is very enjoyable. I recommend reading the book as well. It's the 1993 thriller Rising Sun. I must say I don't know it. It's strangely similar to Die Hard in some of its its use of um, Japanese names, for example. Um, But it has Sean Connery in it um, as an investigating detective around surrounding something that takes place at a tower block. It's it's quite similar to Die Hard in its setup. It's very different in the way it plays out. Worth watching. Fair enough. Fair enough. Excellent. My, my recommendation, as you say, it, it sometimes uh, it can be hard to sort of quantify this film. And I think that's maybe why it's sort of lingered in my mind over the years. Is that as a teenage boy, I'd never seen anything quite like this film before. Mm. So I've I've gone for two recommendations, both a bit kind of thematic and visual, um, and one kind of bit more narrative-based, I say. Now, I've always been obsessed with the idea that visual motifs can be repeated through films. There's a, a series of YouTube videos, I think it's called Everything is a Remix. That talks about how uh, a motif can sort of be passed down through the generations of movie makers, um, and this is uh, sort of something I like. I talked about it the first week and the idea that uh, the in Drunken Angel I was reminded of Nosferatu, and in this week, as the beggar and his son get iller and iller and iller, their screen becomes bluer and purple and darker, mm. and I was reminded of the nineteen seventy one film The Omega Man. That's a, a weird jump, I'm well aware. Um, but a year later, um, Charlton Heston stars as the last man alive um, living in New York. It is a version of I Am Legend, the movie, um, and it's certainly closer to the original 
book than the Will Smith starring one for a few years ago. But the vampire zombies creatures have the exa- almost exactly the same look as as the the dying and aging beggar. And every time he came on screen towards him, sorry, all I could think about was the Omega Man. So I, I just I, I like the idea that this visual motif is passed down through film to film to film. My second recommendation is a much more recent one from 2006 um, from one of the most, I think, challenging directors working today, and that is David Lynch and his movie Inland Empire. David Lynch's movies can get quite surreal um, and quite disjointed. Anyone seen that Mother on Drive um, and that a razor head, it can get quite surreal. Inland Empire is certainly the peak of that surreality of his movies. Um, ostensibly about an actress uh, trying to come to terms with, with, with an audition. Um, her world starts to fall apart around her. It is a film where you must forego any kind of ideas of narrative or plot and just be sort of long for the, the visual and the sort of the ride and the, the editing ride of it. I'm a big fan of Lynch and I like this is one of his one of his sort of crowning triumphs, but you've got to buy into its nature. And the same thing can be said for Dennis Cadet. So that's Inland Empire from two thousand six. Great. Well, if you'd like to discuss any of this, then get in touch with us. Um, We are moving on from Kurosawa, so next week we are starting to look at Joel Schumacher, the output of Joel Schumacher, with, I believe, Rob, correct me if I'm wrong, falling down. No, actually, we're going to start with Lost Boys. Right. Uh, His, uh, the the, the classic vampire movie. it's quite a jump from Kurosawa to Schumacher, but I enjoy that. Right, I've just given away what we're doing in, in the week after. Yeah, look uh, at that, we were doing Falling Down. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it's coming. But yes, do do get in touch with us if you want to talk about Kurosawa or any, or anything else on Twitter. Um, you can talk to both of us at Prestige Podcast. You can find just me at Rob Kaiju. Or just me at Life underscore Academic. And we'll see you back here next week. The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries.